Welcome to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. The world is never going to be slower in terms of change than it is today, writes Beth Comstock in her book, Imagine It Forward. This is how she describes a problem that she believes all organizations, large and small, must address, managing change. I'm Scarlett Fu with Bloomberg News, and in this episode, we talk with the former CMO and vice chair of General Electric, one of the largest and oldest companies in America, about Beth's career as a change maker, leader, risk taker, and innovator. Beth Comstock, clearly an innovator. She recently wrote a book on her journey as an innovator in a big company, that's GE. And it's called Imagine It Forward, and it chronicles her rise to vice chair at General Electric. And it also describes her efforts to steer this massive company, this company with a huge, long history, 126-year-old industrial giant founded by Thomas Edison. It's an aircraft carrier, really, or two new growth opportunities. Um, you were a thought leader inside GE. And in reading your book, Beth, it's clear that your story, both in your personal and professional life, involved a lot of risk-taking and learning to embrace change. So let's start our conversation there. Okay. We'll begin with your first big risk. And we're going to get personal here because it involves getting divorced and being a single mom, becoming a single mom in your mid-20s. You wrote about how this was a decision to choose a life for yourself. How did that set the tone for what you did next? Yeah, well, um, I actually start my book, which is a very unusual way, probably the only person who's ever started a business book with a divorce, at least a personal divorce story, not a business divorce. And I did that, and I share that story because I think all of us uh, have had to confront some kind of change in our life, often change that you didn't want or that was very uncomfortable. I, I call myself a change maker. I don't really make change. And to be honest, I don't always like change, especially mm -hmm. the kind of change I don't control. But here I was mid-20s. Uh, I had just started in a career, um, and um, I was married and had a young baby. Um, and I realized that kind of af after a series, I got to this series of moments, I got to this, this point where I realized the story I was living was not the story I wanted to, to have for myself. Story is a very important theme for me. We'll probably return to it many times, but I had to take action. I had to choose a different path. I chose to get a divorce, to move forward, pursue, um, I had to pursue work in a career because I was choosing to go forward as a, as a divorced single mother. Um, and I, I use that because, um, one, I had always been small town good girl. I did everything that was expected of me. I got gold stars. I was in every club. I did everything that was supposed to do. And getting married and having that life was what was expected of me, except I expected something different. Mm -hmm. And so I, I like that story. I, didn't, I don't like that it happened and I, you know, all that. But I liked that as a way to think about it because I, at that moment, I was choosing a path and I had no choice but to figure out how to make it work. And I think often now in my life since then, when things have changed, when I've confronted things, whether I wanted them or not, I would go back to that moment and go, you know, you, you did this before in a very profound mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. You can do this. I remember I, I, uh, I share in the book, I sort of remember I was like my cold, my sweaty ear was pressed against this cold bedroom door as my then husband was telling my mother we're getting a divorce. And I remember just saying to myself, like, I just can't be this. Um, but 
I could figure out how to do something else. And so to me, it was that moment of going back and often say, you know, you can do this. You did this. You can do that again, whether right. it's personal or professional. Right. And that's that's something that influenced how you went about responding to new challenges and pursuing new opportunities at GE. Um, let's talk about your most impactful professional risk. And I don't know if this is so much a risk as um, it was an opportunity that kind of dropped in your lap. You were at NBC when Jack Welch, the the infamous, the legendary Jack Welch, um, asked you to leave Rockefeller Center to work with him at the Mothership, which is GE headquarters in Connecticut. Can you describe the initial phone call that came when Jack Welch called you up and said, hey, I have an opportunity for you? Yeah, so um, I thought my whole career would be in media. That's the, the path that I had chosen to go on. And um, and so he called me up to his office. I actually was doing public relations at the time. There were all these rumors that NBC was going to be sold. G was going to sell it. It took it like 20 years later for that to happen. But <laughs> I went up there expecting I would be talking to him about the press release we were going to do to sell it. And he said, I'd like you to come and work at GE. And um, he, was, he knew he had a succession ahead. It, it was about four years before he would uh, step down and pick his successor. And it was a very public succession race. And he was looking for a kind of a transition team to help navigate that that transition. And it was one of those moments where I had not thought of taking the job. I mean, I worked in GE because I worked for NBC, but most people didn't leave NBC to go to GE. I mean, you, you, worked, at, you worked at both CNBC and GE. Yes. You got a sense of it. Most people were eager to leave GE. To, the GE side to go to NBC, but rarely did they go to the GE side. But to me, it was just something I, I wanted to do. I wanted to take an opportunity. He wasn't the Jack Welch he became uh, mm -hmm. at that particular moment. But it was just, it, I'm glad I did. GE became my finishing school, my, my business school. It was, really, uh, it was really a formative role for me. Welch wanted you to oversee the communications. It eventually led to Jeff Immelt being named CEO. And you then returned to NBC. So let's talk about your return to NBC, because we can get into Hulu here and digital media yep. as well. Um, it was a little more frustrating when you went back to NBC because this was 2005. Online video was really picking up steam. YouTube was a big thing. You were at the front line of trying to digitize NBC. We talk about risks. One of the risks that NBC took was to acquire this company called iVillage. Does anyone remember iVillage? Okay, raise of hands there. It ultimately did not work out. What, what did you learn from that? What happened and what did you learn? So um, a couple of things. I mean, one, I take you back 10 years ago. This was the emergence of uh, streaming video. And uh, at the time, YouTube had just emerged on the scene. Um, Google hadn't bought YouTube at the time. And, um, and it was, um, there was a, I, I had been doing some change work at NBC when I, I mean, at GE, Jack brought me in. I, Jeff Immelt came in. I took over as chief marketing officer and led some change work. That's why they shipped me back. But people were a bit, um, sort of didn't know what to make of the change that was happening. So YouTube emerged, and there, it was equal parts fascination, almost thinking it was silly. Look at that. Cats playing the piano on video. How cute. Ha, ha, ha. And then it was like panic. Oh, my gosh. What if we're not good at making videos of cats playing the piano? So that was the environment back then of when I, when I showed up there. Um, and so people were equally kind of dismissive of the potential change and fearful of it. And so we had to sort of, I had to put a digital team together. We had to figure out how do we go forward. News Corp bought MySpace, if any of you remember MySpace back in the day. And we were even more panicked. So we set about to buy a women's community called iVillage. And it was like great strategy, women in community, married with our content. 
But we proceeded as a company to kind of kill iVillage. Um, the antibodies came out. The antibodies wanted to, you know, didn't want this new digital property coming in there. And so um, it presented a lot of change and challenge um, to try to seed something new. It probably wasn't the best acquisition we could have done. Mm -hmm. And it didn't work out as well. And kind of out of that, and at the same time, News Corp was going through their challenge, and MySpace didn't work out so well for them either. And so um, we both ended up getting together out of that, um, that kind of learning that we weren't so good at incubating new things in the face of disruption. So we got together and decided that we were, after a number of different iterations, we got together and decided we were going to um, create a new video streaming service. Um, it's what became Hulu. We hired a new uh, venture. We hired an entrepreneur to do it, and Jason, Jason Kyler, Kyler. Um, who started it. And um, it, was, uh, it was a great learning lesson. We can come back to those lessons. But I think I, I share that because out of the failure that we both had and seeing the intensity of the change, we, we realized we had to do something and it led us to partner and it led us to do something very non-traditional, which many of the folks here will appreciate as, as founders and, and uh, folks who work in tech, we realized we couldn't do it on our own. We needed to do it together and we needed an outside force to do it. So you mentioned Jason Kyler. He had previously been at Amazon and you handpicked him to, you, you were rooting for him, you handpicked him to lead Hulu. He was disruptive. He was known to be a disruptor. Talk a little bit about the experience of working on launching Hulu with him as, as someone who came in and broke down walls. I mean, he's very different from the kinds of people you encounter at NBC or at GE. Yeah, so, um, so what, I think it's a classic example of a, of a challenger brand model where you're willingly seating somebody to take on the incumbent, to challenge the status quo we all talk about. And so it was a team of us uh, between Fox and NBC that, that chose Jason because he came out of Amazon and he had, had a good track record of customer focus. But we had to set up a set of rules for him to succeed and for us to allow him to succeed. He had to have the freedom to take any asset, anything he wanted from the two parents and reject anything that he didn't want. And that was really set up a, a bit of tension in the company. One, he, got, he had a set of funding. So if you're an incumbent in either Fox or NBC, and you're like, yeah, we've got $50 million a year assigned to Jason, but you're running a very successful, you're running NBC News, or you're running Bravo, you're like, well, wait a minute. What could I do with that $50 million? Why are you giving it to those right. guys? They're just starting. They don't have any revenue. They barely have a customer. So you, there was that kind of tension. And we had already seen what happened before when you, when you kind of had that. But we had to set up a, better, a, a series of rules that they, or pra practices. And so I'll give you an example how that, how that comes down. So our team, again, we, for a while we tried to build this Hulu property ourselves between News Corp teams and NBC. Our NBC team had built a video player. And we spent a lot of money on it. And it had every bell and whistle you could ever engineer. And this is often what companies do. They throw everything in it. They say, we can do it. And uh, we said to Jason, good news. We've got a great video player. You don't, have to, you don't have to create one. It'll speed up time. He goes, that thing is terrible. It's a terrible experience. I'm not going to take it. I'm going to take time and redesign my own. He's going to start from scratch. Start from scratch. And in an established company, you'd be like, wait a minute, we have to write that off. What do you mean? We've already spent all this money. The team's already done it. Right. So he had the ability to say, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Mm -hmm. um, I remember he wanted and needed to pay the team with stock options and, and Hulu equity. 
And certainly in GE, there was this rule, like you can never pay anyone anything other than GE stock. Mm -hmm. um, and yet we had, to, we had to work through that because people wanted that, they were taking a risk, they wanted the reward. So you had to fight those fights and people like me had to become the champion. The one who's kind of working through the system saying like, let him go, stand back. I remember once an HR leader came running in, but he's hiring people and not signing a non-disclosure agreement. Ah. Ah. You know, things like that. And so you had to kind of fight it off and go, I think they're probably worse things we should worry about right now. Okay, so you led that charge, and it didn't always make you the most popular person in the room, but you got it done, and you had the that support. That and a lot of things didn't make me the most popular <laughs> person in the room. You had the support of senior management. You describe yourself in the book as being very curious, someone who believes in a wide range of possibilities. My question is, when we think of GE, we think of home of best practices, Six Sigma, which is a system from process improvement, so like the status quo, but making it better. How much room did you really have to spread your wings inside GE, being uh, someone who is exploring, testing, prodding, inside a company that's known for perfecting a process? That was a real tension. I think that was the tension that I came into, again, having worked with Jack Welch and then Jeff Immelt took over. Um, that was the tension because... Trust me, when you're flying on a jet engine, the next time you have to get on a plane, like you want that thing to be at least six sigma. I don't know how many sigma they are, but like, <laughs> trust me, they're really on the verge of perfect, right? So, but in innovation, in human processes, defects are the opportunity. I mean, Six Sigma was all about eradicating defects. We people are prone to defects. That's the beauty of what of where innovation comes from. So, in that was some tension and. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I saw that as an opportunity of somebody who came in and, and found my way into marketing and started seeing marketing as a way to drive change and innovation. In those defects, in those moments of what wasn't working was where innovation came forth. So that was the challenge. And, um, you know, I think it's a challenge for all of us in business. And maybe we can talk about this in the q and I think you've got short-term pressures, you know, a, a, a sense of, Perfection of always make your numbers, always make the quarter. That's a kind of version of that mm -hmm. as well. And yet at the same time, innovation is erratic and you don't always make your numbers and things don't always work out exactly as your business plan said. So I came to appreciate kind of a need for a, a almost like a two-lane way of operating the company. And that's a lot of the journey I went on to fight for more of that second way in the company to seed innovation, to make a mess, to, to not have the answer and mm -hmm. try to figure it out. I like what you said about marketing driving innovation because you came from the marketing side. You're skilled at crafting a narrative, a story to get the buy-in from everyone involved, whether it's customers, whether it's management, whether it's employees. Um, talk about the relationship between story and strategy and how when you combine the two, they drive business. Yeah, so I did. I was named chief marketing officer after Jeff Immelt took over and I, I came with a storytelling background, and most people at the time, I think Ad Age when I got the job, because I didn't come with a traditional marketing background, Ad Age, right, the, um, the rare marketing leader who has no marketing experience, and I don't think they meant that as a compliment. Um, and um, so I had to kind of forge a new path, and most of the people in the company, because it was very engineering, thought marketing was what you do at the end. It's the story you tell, it's the ad you do, the trade show, and yes, we did that, but the opportunity seemed much richer also to be what you do at the beginning, to be the, the ones that figure out what are the trends and insights, to literally take the job seriously. It's about living in the market. And so that's kind of the path that, that I and my colleagues went on. And 
when you do that and you marry kind of the storytelling at the end with the insights at the beginning, you start to see a whole new path of strategy. Mm -hmm. um, and really that ability to say, you know, market back, not just inside out. And, and strategy really is about innovation and ideas. And if you can't tell your idea, um, who's going to follow you? If you can't sell your idea, who's ever going to invest in it? So I pretty quickly got the opportunity in the teams I worked with to connect those two dots. Um, and really, I think it's an essence. I mean, if you can't tell a good idea, who's ever going to follow you? Who's ever going to work for you? Who's ever going to invest in you? And really, it's at the heart of what I feel like I'm fighting for, imagination. Imagine the future. You have to be able to tell a vision. That's why we all sit equal, equal parts appalled and uh, uh, attracted to Elon Musk, right? Because he has this amazing vision, like, come with me to Mars, like, I'm going to go, I'm going to sign up, and, and it's going to be great, we're going to, like, inhabit a new planet, and it's a strategy, but it's also a story, yeah. and you have to find your way in there, and that's where innovation starts, it's not just in the numbers, it's not just in eradicating the defects or just making your quarter. Which made you kind of a lone wolf in GE. Definitely. Definitely. Um, you, you started something called Imagination Breakthrough, speaking of imagination, and you were selling this idea that you have to look beyond, you have to go to the market for new ideas within your company to managers within GE, presidents of different business units, uh, the CEO, Jeff Immelt. Uh, imagination Breakthroughs was an incubator that encouraged innovation at GE's different businesses. How did the program work and what were some of the ideas that came out of it that you thought really resonated? Yeah, it's interesting. We modeled it on Danaher, and now the new CEO hmm. of GE came from Danaher. Full so circle. I, full circle. But um, it, w really, we were trying to say, okay, market back innovation, um, because we were really good at uh, technical techno technology out innovation. Market back. Let's create a space. We're going to call. We're going to uh, we're going to create a space. We were looking for new ideas that generated a couple hundred million dollars of, of revenue over three to five years. And we had to create a protected class of ideas. And this was our first foray into that in, in a while, where we had to protect them. And by protected, I mean they couldn't get cut because you had to make a quarter or make your year or make your budget. Um, they could only get cut because they were a bad idea or the data came back. Um, that, that it was, wouldn't work. And we did simple things. I mean, the, for one of the first ideas was resegmenting the market in the Middle East and uh, in the energy business, and they generated $200 million of new opportunity over the course of three years. Like, it wasn't particularly imaginative or breakthrough, but it was a way of thinking market back. My favorite idea, and again, what we were trying to do was protect a space to create new revenue growth, new organic growth. And we were trying to get people kind of, what I say, outside the jar looking outside the way they normally innovated. And so I'll give you an example of one of my favorite ones was um, our healthcare business was looking uh, at ways of solving a big problem. Our question was what problem are we trying to solve from the market back? And so they were hanging out with anesthesiologists and they realized that anesthesiologists were in, a, in kind of a tough spot, we should all think about this when you're in, going into surgery, that there are all kinds of bells and whistles and it was monitors everywhere and, and the anesthesiologist couldn't focus. And so we had the opportunity to redesign the anesthesiologist's experience, but the anesthesiologist couldn't tell us what they did. Hmm. So thinking outside the jar, this imagination breakthrough team said, aha, we think we know who can help us get into the minds of the anesthesiologist. It's airline pilots. Who else is in life and death situations in a cockpit with all kinds of bells and whistles and has to land the plane safely? So they brought in airline pilots and had them sit and observe in the surgical, in the operating room. Mm -hmm. 
and say, here's a way to think about it. And out the other end came a totally new redesigned anesthesia suite that used the exact same technology, just redesigned it and created a whole new business line. That's what we were trying to do. And you kind of had to force that, the, the people, the funding, the protection. And, and I think in any company, big or new, you have to create a path for that. You had to convince the people inside medical systems to get on board with your idea too, because I'm sure they were resistant. They had designed their system before and they wanted to perfect that system rather than tear it up. And, and that's all, all the over. tension. And it wasn't just me, it was a team of people. So we seeded these kind of irritants or instigators mm. in every business unit called marketers, but these change-making marketers. And it was a tough path because exactly what you said, I mean, it was not for the... Um, it was not for the ones who wanted to be loved. It was not for the ones who wanted to be most popular, but it was the ones who believed in a better way, who saw these trends outside. Um, I had to establish myself as a bit of an outsider inside, and it was a concept I really came to embrace. I, I, I didn't think of it, but it's one I really embraced, this notion of be enough of an expert of the trends and patterns that are happening outside, but then translate it in a way that the inside team can understand it. Mm -hmm. So. For us to be successful, we had to have that translation function. You couldn't just be a bunch of outsiders because people don't take you seriously. And within GE, translating that meant putting things into an equation because you're in a company full of engineers. Um, talk about GE's partnership. This is the appliances business partnership with Quirky, which was a crowdsourced platforms for new inventions because that led to a whole new line of products that the appliance team wouldn't have thought of otherwise. Yeah, so Quirky is a New York-based innovation company. They did open source crowdfunding. Um, and um, I, we were looking at open source manufacturing. We were looking at 3D printing. We love the idea of that of ideas can come from anywhere and they can make you get an idea, a product faster. And appliances became a bit of a lab for us to figure out new manufacturing methods. So we thought, great, we're going to marry Quirky with appliances. And it was interesting because half the appliances business thought it was a great idea and the other half thought it was the stupidest <laughs> idea they'd ever heard because Quirky just made little plastic things and they couldn't possibly know how to make the, the, you know, the scaled machines that, that uh, G Appliances did. Um, and so we started down that path and the CTO really embraced it, the CEO didn't. Um, but out of that um, came some interesting things. Um, they started working with a lot of different entrepreneurs and doing open source models, opened themselves up. Quirky went bankrupt, which was a very a disappointing failure for all of us. It didn't work with the path we were on and it didn't work for them. But out of that, the appliances team started to develop their own method of open source manufacturing, created something today that's... Um, that's called um, First Build, and it's a great model. It was a, it was a way to open it up to anyone in the world to say, help us develop a better way of making uh, an appliance. And they cited it at the University of Louisville, mm -hmm. and they invited retired engineers and students together to come in and create new things together to test them to do a limited-run manufacturing facility. And so by partnering with a startup, although ultimately that partnership didn't work, it seeded a whole new way of working um, through a lot of trial and error and tension, but I, I, it helped me appreciate the value of big and small companies working together, of making, again, a, a lane for that kind of sort of test and learn approach. Uh, what I came to appreciate as a test and scale approach, you need in any organization a way to kind of test the new and next, mm -hmm. and then once you figure it out and you want to get it to scale, go there. What big companies do is they often just go right to scale. They throw stupid money at stuff before it's time, what we came to call premature scaling. 
And honestly, I saw this with a small company too. Quirky had so much funding. It was one of the most well-funded uh, companies of its era just a couple of years ago. And it had so much money and so many people telling it what to do, it got distracted and took on too many things. And before you know it, it wasn't able to keep up with um, with the pace of, of what, it, it had too much to do and it went bankrupt. It tried to be everything to everyone. It did, exactly. And so that doesn't just happen to a big company. I think it's a cautionary tale for, for small founders as well. So we'll get to the contrast between um, innovation uh, at startups versus big companies, but I want to get your thoughts on um, how investors reacted because certainly there's tension in selling the, this, this new approach within the company, but how did outside investors view these efforts by you, by your team? GE's bottom line would not necessarily be impacted by uh, different innovations that you guys came up with, the imagination breakthroughs, because this is a massive company. But did it did investors respond to it in a, in a way that encouraged you to do more? It's interesting. When we started the imagination breakthroughs, I remember with a little bit of track record going and doing an analyst pitch, it, it, it was not of interest at all. Hmm. Um, because it seemed small, it seemed like no one could see where this was going. I found a similar path when we started our clean tech effort. We called it Eco-Imagination, which was a bit of a cute name, and you know, and we had to convince them it was a very serious effort. But it seemed small. And I think that was always the challenge I found in a big company. Not only did you have some colleagues who thought this is too small, you're just dabbling, but often investors didn't appreciate the um, the opportunity until they could see more of it. And also in a company that had largely grown through acquisition where you had things that were kind of immediately accretive or on a path to, to accretive scale, this just seemed somewhat distracting. I see. And so I found that quite frustrating, to be honest. Right, if there was no visibility to the investor, then they just didn't pay attention. They wanted they wanted the numbers that would add immediately. Yeah, to they the wanted market. bigger numbers faster. And a company mm -hmm. that big, I mean, you could maybe understand it. I, I think at the time we used to say GE would have to grow. At the time, it was like a Starbucks or a Nike every year uh -huh. to keep up with its growth. So anything I'm and my, the teams I worked with might have been seeding a hundred million dollars in three to five years. Are you kidding? I got you got to create you know fifteen to nineteen billion every year. Uh, billion, mm -hmm. not million. What are you doing? So it just seemed small, but um, it took us a long time, I think, to get the confidence of you had to do enough of those to get to the bigger things. So you talked about how stupid money gets thrown at companies sometimes to scale right away. You, you were part of a big company. Do the resources of that big company give you more room or less room to fail? Uh, you could argue that big companies provide a financial safety net in a way that small companies don't because it's not really going to show up in the bottom line that investors are going to notice? Yeah, that's a really thoughtful question. I mean, I um, most big companies, you don't find anyone who thinks they have too much money. I, I've never met anyone who's like, I have too much budget. You can have it back. It's really, no. Um, and thinking. you never meet a small company that feels they have too much money. But um, big companies, they, they, they can, this premature scaling notion is something I saw not just at GE. I think a lot of companies do it. I, um, I remember we were seeding uh, battery technology um, in our clean tech space, and um, the thinking was, well, it's just like plastics. It's just like we did back in the 90s, and we throw a lot of money at it, build it, and they will come. Mm -hmm. Yet we hadn't validated, not that just that the technology didn't work, but we didn't validate the business model. Yet there's this myth that if we just put enough money, we can move faster, and what it ends up creating 
is a different kind of a constraint, if you will, because so much money had been put in this factory that the team had to then find revenue no matter what it took. It didn't matter that it, they hadn't validated that it, people even wanted to buy it, it that way. It has to work now. It has to work. And so you know where the story goes. It had to be written off to the tune of $200 million. And you see that time and again from companies. They don't have patience, again, for that small-scale proving that you're onto something and then putting the money to work. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's it. I think smaller companies, perhaps because of the constraints, are much better at kind of that stage gate approach because they have no other way to do it but that way. Mm -hmm. And I think venture capital's models largely are pretty effective. And we, in the end of my time there, I think really adopted more of a venture capital model to funding some of these ideas so we didn't throw money at the wrong people, the wrong stage, and the wrong idea. It imposes limit, limitations it, and constraints on you. It, it does. And so um, what happens in big companies, too, as I said earlier, is people think, I have this money. I can't, I can't possibly give it up. And they hang on to something longer than they need to. They don't want to admit it's failed. Mm. And so partly what you're trying to get to is this test and learn model where you still have the right strategy, the vision, but how many ideas can you test? How little money can we put toward it? And so then with confidence, we can all fund the things because we see they're working, as opposed to everybody protecting their little fiefdoms and mm. I can't give my money back. Now you're encouraging them to give the money back so you can get to something that works faster. So on the flip side, what can a small, lean startup learn from a big company like GE? Well, a small company is usually much faster than a big company. I mean, we, in our fastest days, we could never keep up with a small company. But small companies can't scale. Uh, fast, right? They don't appreciate the, the hard work it takes to scale and to get to customers and markets fast. So I often found the partnerships between big and small were really great if you were willing to do the hard work. It meant shared vision. Uh, it meant creating the right kind of funding mechanisms. But uh, a big company can help a small company scale quickly mm -hmm. if you get the right kind of shared commitment and partnership. Now, of course, when we're talking about GE, aside from say appliances, lighting, and NBC, which is kind of its own beast within GE, this is an industrial company. It's a B2B company. It's not a consumer-facing company for the most part. You did serve on Nike's board of directors, which was kind of unusual because GE generally does not allow its senior executives to serve on other publicly traded companies' boards, but they saw you as someone whose job it was to bring in fresh ideas from outside, so it kind of went with your portfolio. What did you learn about innovation from a company like Nike that's different from your experience at GE? Well, I'd say in many ways the experiences were kind of similar. And I'll, I'll tell you what, I mean, Nike's a global company. And I think uh, what I learned at GE and what I've seen at Nike is global companies often try to take one idea and make it scale everywhere globally, which it does to a certain part, but you, you forget about the localization. Mm -hmm. So when Nike first went into China, they had some challenges. And, adapting the local product to the local Chinese market. I'd say it was the same thing I saw at GE when we were trying to seed consumer health in India and trying to do it at kind of global scale and not recognizing putting the best tech at the lowest price was what was required in both India and China. So I'd say I found similar issues. I think Nike's very surgically focused. They're very focused. They know their customer incredibly well. I think you see it played out even in some of the work they've done, the campaign that got a lot of attention with Colin Kaepernick and Serena Williams. Mm -hmm. They know their consumers really well. And I think, again, it's a hard thing to keep track of in a company. I think Amazon's done that quite well. And when they haven't, you've got Bezos there saying, if we lose sight of our customer, we lose. 
And so Nike has always, like, we're about the, ha having the athlete perform. And I love that, like, if you, it, that asterisk over the athlete, and uh, meaning if you have a body, you're an athlete. Mm. And so they're somewhat inclusive in it. Yeah. They know their mission. They know their customer. And I think we could all take something from that. They know their customer, but again, they're customer-facing. They're consumer-facing. Yeah. GE is not really consumer-facing once you take out yeah, but they have appliances and lighting. Intimacy with their customers. In, their in business some, customers. In, but in some ways, you could argue a business, B2B company has more intimacy with their customers than a consumer com company. Why? Because there are fewer of them? There's fewer of them. They solve bigger problems. I mean, you can't, fl you can't run an airline without a jet engine. You can't run a railroad without a locomotive. You can't diagnose cancer without an MRI machine. So these are essential technologies, yet bureaucracy creeps in, process takes over. You lose sight of the customer, and I think that's what big companies have to, and small companies have to be wary of. Don't start thinking your process is so great that you lose sight of who your customers are. I love that Peter Drucker quote, circa 54 or whatever, 1954, without a customer there is no business. Mm -hmm. Like that's the essential part, but big companies forget that. Yeah, they get mired in their systems. Yeah, in their systems and, and, um, and best practices from one another. Six Sigma, all of that, seven Sigma, eight Sigma. Um, let's take a little bit of a detour because we can't mention GE this often and not acknowledge the fact that this is a very different company than when you, ran, when you were helping to run it. In 2000, it was the most valuable company in the world. It's now worth about a tenth of its market value then. There are a lot of questions about GE's future and whether it and its debt load are sustainable. What, sitting back now, you know, on your perch somewhere else, what do you think went wrong at GE? What, what happened that took it so far off course? Well, I think it's complex. I think it's a complex story, a complex company, and a complex age. Um, I know as being part of the leadership team there, there were a lot of us fighting for the future, fighting for speed, for simplicity. You can't solve complexity with complexity. And I think that's what we all ought to think about in terms of the companies we see growing to, to, to the sky and the, the big scale with every you know, with every amount of size that a company increases, it increases its complexity. Um, conglomerates fell out of, out of favor. You know, I think GE, it's hard to adapt nimbly when you're a big conglomerate and they're not in favor. That speed rush to simplicity was certainly underway, but it could have been faster. I think speed was really an issue. Um, and I think also the GE capital model, I think some of that is still unwinding, but um, some people have called it a ticking time bomb. I don't know, but you know there was a lot of debt um, that came with the capital model, and as GE got out of capital, it, it it had to do that. Didn't move fast enough in some respects, as I said. But it's complex. It's a really good company, and that's the thing. I I, I worked there for so long because I believed in the mission of it. The mm -hmm. company still makes things the world needs. Isn't there a level of value of that in the world today? And so. Um, with investors, it's in a tough place. With customers, I think they love what they make. Mm -hmm. So somewhere that's got to be connected. I think it's good they have a new, uh, a new uh, someone from the outside who can bring a new perspective. I think that's really helpful. But it, I would say to you, it is a good company, um, and I would, I would bet on them. Um, but they have to move fast. So I'm intrigued by what you said about how you can't solve complexity with complexity, and you know, big companies that become complex have a harder time adjusting and pivoting. Are there any parallels with some of the big tech companies that we see right now? I think so, yes. What, I mean, go ahead. I just think, well, I mean, 
I say on one hand conglomerates are going out of favor, maybe it's industrial conglomerates mm. are out of favor, but certainly tech conglomerates are seemingly in favor. I mean, Amazon's in how many different industries, Google's in how many different industries. Um, you've got to be thinking if you're running those companies or investing in those companies, with the, the size that, and complexity, it just gets harder to, to have the culture go in the same way. Um, you got to be thinking the leadership team is less able to take some risks that they used to be able to take. Um, the, the, you know, how are they testing for that? Is the culture really encouraged to take that? So mm -hmm. I think all of us ought to be asking some of those questions. So I bring that up also because um, Apple is a company that's not struggling, but there are a lot of questions being posed right now about whether it can continue growing the way it did because the smartphone uh, market is now getting more saturated and it's no longer counting on double-digit growth of the iPhone, the next uh, 10 or 11 or 12 or 13 iPhone. Um, how do you make Apple an innovative company again? Is there a, a way that you'd go about looking at getting its creative juices flowing again? Well, partly they have a they are, they are a big company. I mean, I think what they're doing in healthcare is really intriguing. Can they lean more into that? Will they lean more into it? Because Apple's so secretive, they're not one to lay out their vision for the future for us. They don't imagine forward publicly. Mm -hmm. So I think it's hard to know what they may have up their sleeves until we're literally wearing it on our sleeves someday. Um, so I I guess I'd hope they you know they they come from good innovative genes and if they if they could show us a bit of that, I advocate for a bit more letting us in and seeing, get, getting, getting us excited about some of the things they're creating for the future. Right, rather than rather than trying to trying to protect it, and and so you know they've got sitting on a lot of cash. They, there's a lot of cash they could put to work in in new ways. Mm -hmm. um, I would worry a little bit about their perfection-seeking culture and some of the things we've been talking about. It's um, their version of Six Sigma. It, well, I think it. You have to make a mess, and you have to put things out that may not always work so well and you have to find a way to do that in a way that's a get a bit smaller not at scale and maybe they're doing that and they just don't ever share that with us but um it seems that uh, things don't make it to the market until they're absolutely right, perfect right 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 now i also bring up apple because you have a personal story there we we started the the interview the conversation with risk taking um there's a risk that you regret not taking and that was you actually turned down steve jobs offer to work at Apple, not once, but twice. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah, so when you look at the GE stock and the Apple stock, you go, okay, huh. <laughs> um, you really imagined that one forward, didn't you? Um, so I was at NBC uh, in the middle of the digital transition. It was actually a really tough assignment. I don't know if we'll come back to that, but I, I um, uh, some good things came out of my NBC assignment, but I also really struggled in part. And it was a tough environment. People were, it was a lot of conflict and agitation and people were out very tribal mm -hmm. uh, at, at, at the fear of the change. And so I had a lot of reason why I might have wanted to leave and I got to work with Apple and we were doing stuff with iTunes and digital distribution. And, and so I got these uh, offers and I turned them down. And I turned them down for a couple of reasons, um, mostly because it just wasn't what I wanted to do. And I had to really interrogate myself and the strategy and what I wanted to do. I wanted to be more content driven, more storytelling. I saw Apple as a technology company. Um, the second time it was more of a clean tech kind of a kind of a job. It was a bit ambiguous to be honest. Mm. Uh, my young daughter was going into high school. She said if we moved, she'd turn goth, which I thought maybe wouldn't have been the worst <laughs> thing that happened to her. Um, and so she's not goth, is she's she? not goth, okay. but it might be good for her. It might have been good. Um, but um, but I um, I remember sitting with my husband and. Uh, 
we were looking at the offer and it wasn't, a, you know, the cash wasn't so great, but the stock options, we were, we were like going, how good can these options really ever be? I mean, come on. And this would have been 2007, pre-iPhone, and I remember Steve Jobs saying, we're going to be really big. You just wait. We're on the we're on the cusp of something really big. Every CEO says that. You're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, and I said no. And um, the times I regretted it were, well, of course, when the stock was doing really well, I have to admit. And then just did I miss an opportunity to make myself better? Because, you know, I think he was a tough taskmaster, but I think the people I know who worked for him thought they made him better. Mm -hmm. Was I afraid to take on a risk? Was I afraid? But ultimately, I shared it because ultimately, I, I again, back to that early story, it was a path I chose not to take. Mm -hmm. And it was a path that I was going to make work because I couldn't live in regret. Uh, it wasn't the right thing for me. And ultimately, I had a process and I felt I had to feel a gut check that says this is not the right job. And, and be confident in that. But sure, there are times you go, oh, could I, should I? Especially when you'd fight with colleagues, you'd be like, ah. Yeah, um, California yeah. just looks so appealing yeah, exactly. in contrast. Before we open it up to the audience, I wanted to ask um, a final question here on new models in management and leadership. Looking ahead, it's obviously critical for companies, big companies, small companies, to come up with ways to adapt, to stay nimble, to anticipate and pivot when the time is right. Do you think current leaders are equipped with the tools and the mindset to lead that effort? I mean, what, what, what do innovative leaders need to learn? What do they not have right now? What could they do more of? Yeah, I am, um, I, look, I think we put so much, uh, many of you here are um, uh, students or uh, were students, but I think if you study, I, did, I studied biology, I studied business in this kind of school of hard knocks, I guess, but um, <laughs> what I learned is um, I'm not sure we're good at teaching people some of the soft skills, which I think are really critical skills, the adaptation. We're in a time of incredibly um, challenging change. It's not only fast-paced, but it's, a, it's disruptive. How many times do you hear people, you maybe say, well, that seemingly emerged out of nowhere. And so I think it's a time of emergent change. And if you study emergent science, it's this notion that change is happening in kind of discrete pockets, but it sort of comes together and forms new patterns and surprises you seemingly out of nowhere. And I think all of us need to be much more adaptable and ready for change. And you can't just delegate it to the CEO or your boss. You have to do that. Mm -hmm. But we're not taught that way. We're not encouraged that way. We're not, we're not, we're not, um, we're, we're not open-minded enough to think that requires us to do it. So partly I think management as a control function is dead. Our job as managers is to create a vision, to say, here's, here's where we think the world is going. And put a team together and say, I can help find the resources, the time. I'm here to cheer you on, help you when you, when you reach problems, but you got to figure it out. It's a much more figure it out adaptation, this kind of test and learn mindset. I think we have to make more room for discovery, get ourselves and our colleagues out, see where change is happening, get good at pattern recognition, understand where things are happening. So you're not blindsided by them. And realize that you can't control everything maybe you used to think you could. You probably never really could. Um, and that really it's about how quickly can you adapt. I talk in the book about an imagination gap. Um, and I open the book with me going to the CIA to talk about change management. Because the CIA, I'll take you back to 9-11. Um, the 9-11 Commission basically indicted the CIA of having a lack of imagination because you remember they were caught off guard with 9-11 with a new kind of terrorism. 
And out of that, the CIA had to open themselves up to be more adaptable, more open, invite outsiders and people like me to come and talk to them, advisory boards, get out and see where things are happening. And I think that's a critical part. Imagination gap is where you don't think ahead to the unintended consequences, the things that might happen. You're not a creative problem solver, and that's what it needs to be adaptable, I think, in business today. Yet we think creative problem solving, critical thinking, those pale in comparison to data, mm -hmm. to more data, to coding. We need an equal balance, and we need leaders who can kind of figure it out, can think five steps ahead. Um, Facebook might have been able to use a little bit of that mm. Uh, to think through some of those unintended creative problem-solving skills, not just the technical and the commercial skills. Yeah, the problem with data is that the data begets more data and you can really get lost in the weeds and just be stuck there. All right, let's open things up to the audience. Raise your hand if you want to ask a question. Uh, I see this young lady in the front row here has just raised her hand. If we could pass her weird in my microphone. Shoe. <laughs> take off my shoe here. Hi. There we go. Oh, hold on. There we go, so everyone can hear you. Hi, Beth. First of all, I want to give you um, compliments since uh, you can really straddle between the B2B and B2C world. Um, given the digital transformation, AI-powered marketing analytics, um, growing importance of social marketing, um, and also like personalized marketing messages and more, what, what do you think of the top five trends Marketing trends in B2B and B2C. I'm not sure they're so different anymore, to be honest. Um, I, uh, I, I think that um, certainly B2B needs to get m closer to their customer's customer. So I'd say you know, B2B2C, I think, is a really way, good way to think about it. Um, I think customer intimacy matters for a consumer business or a B2B business. How? How well can you know your customer? And data only gives you so much. You have to spend time with them. You have to be like those pilots. You have to get inside the mind of customers. You can't pull them to death. You can't just look at their data and assume you know what they're going to do. You have to spend time with them. So I think that notion of really micro-targeting, understanding, I think personalization is a trend that we're seeing a lot, both consumer and business to business. Um, so I would just I would answer that question with just customer intimacy, whether you're a business or a consumer client. Um, and the other thing I, I think is just thinking about the experience because everybody's focused on the digital piece, and the physical world's not going away. Um, we talk about I, I get a window of that from Nike. If you've been to the new Nike store on Fifth Avenue mm -hmm. and 52nd, it's the Nike experience. You know, it's a whole new experience that merges the digital and the physical. And I think for anyone in business today, you have to think about how do you properly manage that digital and physical interchange and not just have it be about the digital experience. Next, we have a gentleman over there. Hi, Beth. Um, I wanted to ask about GE Digital. When, when you were in charge of marketing and, and GE really created this vision around industrial Internet of Things, I think it was in, enormously impactful um, in, in creating a vision of, of you know, connect, basically connected industry, and you guys have, have you know, articulated concepts like digital twins. But, um, you know, in, in retrospect, in, in the last year, things have, have not worked out, I think, to the, the initial vision. I'd, I'd be interested to get your take on, you know, where things might have been, uh, things you could have done differently yeah. to, you know, to realize the vision. Because I, th I, I still believe it's, it's hugely impactful. Yeah, I'm with you. I still believe, I, I think I'd... 
I'm not sure you're going to navigate the future in industry if you bet against the digitization of industry. I, 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 it's going to happen. It's already happening in manufacturing. If I could take you to uh, GE Aviation, where they're really leading the, the world in 3D printing and new methods of manufacturing, they are digitized in a very profound way in manufacturing. They're going into new spaces. So that part of it's been quite successful. A couple of things that happen in the industrial internet. Um, it's Wait, one of those. Define industrial internet. Yeah. So industrial internet is the internet of things, of industrial things. So connected devices, sensors and controls embedded into a jet engine. So it could tweet at you. Imagine that kind of concept. And if it tweeted at you, what would it say? I'm ready to come in early. I got, I'm running a little hot. Or I'm okay. You don't need to bring me in. It, it, it was about productivity and, and setting up just better insights um, about how you operate your airline or whatever. So that, the vision, it, it, and some of that's rolling out. What happened is, one, G was very early in that. And so we had to make a market. We had to bring our customers with us. And not every customer had the same willingness to do that. So there's time to do that. We had to talk about it and sell a vision before we even could do it ourselves. So you had to take time to hire the right people. So I think all that is to be expected. Um, but you know, did we get ahead of ourselves sometime with the message? I think we did. Um, I also think back to premature scaling. I think, I think a lot of that happened where you just, in many cases, some of the some of the teams just threw money. It wasn't that they weren't smart. It was just like if we put more money, we can get there faster, as opposed to that kind of let's do a micro factory in digital and then figure out how to scale it and and move it across. Let's prove it in one business unit and scale it. That's the tension in any company. But, um, but there were a lot of things out of it that did work. And there were a lot of good things you could point to. So, um, so I don't know. I, I, I think in 10 years, we'll be looking at it a lot differently. I, I, I think the new CEO has to be looking. I hope he's looking at digital as part of the formula. He's got a lot to look at right he now. He does. Uh, gentleman over here. Hi, um, um, wait, microphone's coming to you. I was wondering what you think about like all the management consulting companies like Bain, Accenture. They all say like everybody has to do a digital transformation. Where did you think GE is with that being like you know a legacy company? Do you think that they were telling that already, or you know what is your take on even that buzzword? Yeah, it's a good question, and I see this a lot. I saw it with customers, and I see it a lot with different companies I've interacted with in the past year. You pretty quickly realize that digital transformation is just transformation, <laughs> and so um, I think our lesson learned painfully was. We were bringing our customers along to buy the product, but what we all realized is that you had to learn to work differently. You had to learn to work in a faster, more nimble, more agile, adaptable way, and digital helped you get there, but it was all about org design. It was about transformation. It's suddenly IT, HR, marketing coming together in new ways, and so our customers would come to us like, how are you doing it? Okay, yeah, we'll buy the product, but really we want you to work with us on how are you designing your workflow? How are you designing the feedback loops for employees. How are you doing? So, so that was really, and, and so I think there's been a big shift in that where companies are thinking about transformation and change more than the, and the tool, digital are the tools that enable it, not the digitization of our business alone. I hope that's what, I don't know, is that, are you seeing yeah, that? I know. And so I'm just wondering what your 
take is on that. Yeah, I think it's the entry point. I think it's an entry point into a journey of transformation. And you need a different org design. You need feedback loops. Um, you need different kind of teams that come together, mission-based teams that come together to solve projects and go and do different things. All those things, one leads to another. Um, and if you think it's just a set of digital tools and you'll be transformed, you will be lost. I'm going to jump in with a question here as well. We haven't talked about this yet. Um, as a change agent, as someone who is breaking down walls and leading the company to think outside its comfort zone, did it help or hurt that you're a woman in a company that's dominated by men that grew up within the company? I mean, GE is very homegrown. Up until uh, the current CEO, Larry Culp, everyone came from inside GE from its vaunted management training programs. You, you didn't come from that background. I didn't, and I think, it, I think ultimately it helped, but it made it harder for, for me and the people who championed me, people like Jeff Immelt, who were great champions along the way, and others. Um, but I, I think it allowed me to be different in a way uh, I am different than many of the people I worked for. Um, it was very engineering, very financial focused. If you weren't in finance or engineering, you, you were probably a man. Mm -hmm. um, and here I came with marketing, more creative, media background, story. So I was this outsider inside. Um, and I think people might have underestimated me at mm. times. But frankly, I might have given them reason sometimes. I struggled a lot with confidence in those situations. I don't, I don't know how to talk this language. But I, again, I'd use the what were the strengths, my curiosity. I'm going to find those trends. I'm going to be the outsider and bring that in. Um, so I think it worked a little both ways. But I think as a creative woman, I was perhaps able to navigate things that a perhaps a creative man and G would not have had as much ability to, but I also made those opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a, I think you have to fight for them. You, it's where we started earlier and when Andrew, like you have to kind of give yourself permission to try those things. No one's going to say, here, go do this. Mm -hmm. And so that was a lot of the kind of confidence building and testing things and realizing that I could, I could do something because no one else was looking at that opportunity. You also got very specific feedback because in your book, you talk about how Jeff Immelt actually pulled you aside and said, I need you to show more confidence. I need you to speak yeah. up more, right? Yeah, I, I was in the CMO role. He had uh, had me in that CMO role like for six months, knew I hadn't had that background. And I guess he had seen me in meetings and I wasn't showing up enough. I wasn't, I wasn't asking questions. I wasn't pitching creative ideas, which is what he had seen and why he put me in that job. Mm -hmm. And I was a bit intimidated because I didn't have this marketing background and I felt challenged. And he called me aside kind of like, hey, listen here, lady. Like, I put you in this job for a reason. I expect you to be more confident. And I was kind of like, oh, he figured me out. I thought I was a good actor. <laughs> I was doing my best Meryl Streep. But I'm really not a fake it till you make it kind of person. And I had to really go like, you're right. You called me out. I got to fix that. Right. And now I was accountable to him. And so, you know, it meant I had to go back and I had to sort of summon my courage and ask tough questions and challenge people and things. And that wasn't, that was hard for me, but I had to do that. And he, he said, you have to do that to succeed. You step it up and, and put in, put yourself in that uncomfortable position. All right, we have time for another question. Um, this gentleman over here. Hi, thanks for being here. Um, among the business areas that desperately need to imagine it forward is the nonprofit sector. Yeah. I'm wondering if that's of interest to you, and if so, what areas of that are of interest to you? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would say any of I, I've come to, I, I was just talking with somebody who's trying to drive uh, some change in the government today. Mm -hmm. 
And it just occurred to me, like, change is change is change, you know? And people are people are people, right? So I guess I'd say, what problem are we trying to solve with the, the nonprofit world? I'd want to validate, is that, is that, problem, is, is that a problem set? Um, so I'd want to understand that. I'd want to, um, and then I'd probably, the methods would be very, very similar, the way you would go about it. You have to empower some people on the team who are willing to kind of test these things, spend time outside, get the feedback. So I think the process would be very similar. Um, but I'd want to feel like there was a good meaty problem to be solved for me personally, and also that I had validation that the world needed that, that problem. It's interesting, I think, of nonprofit. Again, not having not worked in nonprofit, but worked in and partnered with some. Um, I sometimes worry that it's too segmented, that too many groups are trying to solve the same problem, and it's a bit of the tribalism. It's a bit of my idea versus your idea. And what I learned in a career of change and innovation painfully, because I got called out for saying it's my idea versus yours, and we didn't succeed. But if you really believe in the idea, shouldn't you be trying to convene and coalesce all the people who are trying to solve that problem? Pool your resources, put the fundraising to really solving that problem, get out of my way versus your way. And so I might not be very popular in the nonprofit world because that's the way I would try to approach it. I would look at the stakeholders and say, how can we get the people who are alike to solve this problem faster, figure out our gaps and get other people in there? Um, and I might not be very popular. All right, final question for you, Beth. Um, what's the next area, what, what's, the, what's the riskiest move that you've made recently? Putting out this book is incredibly risky for me. Um, because I had to open my, I opened myself up. I put together a very non-traditional book. If you have the opportunity to read it, um, you'll see I've packed a lot of pages in there. But it's very personal. It's a personal journey. I felt it was very important for me to share the failures, not just the success. Um, it's a different style of leadership. Um, it doesn't appeal to everybody. I took a risk by opening myself up and putting things in there that didn't work. Um, what kind and, of feedback did you get from former colleagues at GE? Um, I've gotten positive feedback. I had one feed colleague who, who I was just, I wrote about him. I was just crazy about working with this guy. He was such an instigator and an in innovator, and he was really bold. And he didn't ultimately, he, he left early, he didn't make it because the antibodies rejected him. And, and he, he wrote me and he said, you know, I wish I had had a chance to work with this part of you more. You really opened up in a way that I wish we could have seen more of when we worked yeah. together. And so to me, it's been a journey of opening up. And so I think I, I continue to, I put myself out there this year in a very vulnerable way. And I, I think that was a big risk I took this year. All right, Beth Comstock, thank you so thank much Thank you for all time. for being here. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or visit the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast homepage to sign up for invites to future events in this series. You can also watch any of the interviews from this event series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.